Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 694. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. So I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have A Walk in Darkness by Emily Taylor. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. Just Proud dad here. Just want to <laughs> mention, if you if you bear with me. Uh, but, well, it was actually before COVID, I think, when we kind of when the idea was put. My son was going to go and do like, an expedition through university to walk up to kind of Mount Everest Base Camp Four, and we put a kind of like a, a GoFundMe out, and many folks from Starship Silver kind of did put over the money there and help support them. And then, like I say, COVID came and the whole load of things, everything was just being put on the back burner. Well, I think it's probably about 10 a.m. Nepal time. He got to base camp. He got to his his goal. He's He's been walking for about seven days there now. They kind of they flew into Nepal, got another plane to like this kind of high-up airport. I forget the name of it at the moment and then just every day has been doing like say nine to eleven hour treks across suspension bridges and all sorts and we've been getting you know like photographs and videos back and it's just been do you know what I mean you couldn't be more proud of me son of doing this like I say and yesterday or the, the very early this morning very early this morning that in his time he had to get up at 3 a.m to do this kind of 
final stretch to get to see the, I think it's called like the Everest Sunrise. It's a certain location where you can kind of see the sun bouncing off Everest. And do you know what I mean? It's it's fascinating to kind of know that he's there. Do you know what I mean? It's just outstanding, to be honest. When you look on Google and you even just put like a little pin where Nepal is, it's just like miles from nowhere, you know. And like I say, each day has just been like, a, not a slog, I mean, it's been an adventure for him, but do you know what I mean? You're talking like, say, nine hours, you know, and even just like preparation, I think he had to have about 12 to, to 16, like, injections, vaccinations, and you know what I mean? It was just, there was a whole load of, like, process, and like I say, it was, we thought it wasn't going to come off at one time, but today he got there, he got to base camp, and now he's actually got to, got to walk all the way back to civilization, and then I think he's doing, like, a week's safari around Nepal as well. So, and it, like, it's a three-week adventure for him, and... I'm chuffed a bit, to be honest. I mean, I kind of, yeah, he's son. But he's not even 21 yet. And he went, to, I think, two years ago, he went to Russia to space camp, you know, the kind of, to kind of a week there to look at the cosmonauts and kind of work with them for a week. And it's, I've never done, you know what I mean? I would never have dreamed in my time to do stuff like that. But there he is, do you know what I mean? So good on him. And I'm, like you say, a little proud dad there, if you, if you forgive me. But I just want to say, if you did support Reed with the, the the GoFundMe, big thank you. Big, big thank you. It just, you know what I mean? That's how we got, that's how we got my son there. You had to have a certain amount of money to kind of, to get there. I think like a sponsorship deal and it was all part of like a charity thing. So yes, we are... Proud he's at base camp now. He's got to walk all the way back <laughs> to civilization. And I'd go again. He's, they each get assigned like a, a Sherpa is the kind of their kind of mentor, look after them. And this, Reed was saying, like in text, you know what I mean? Just how like fit and how professional these Sherpas are. He says it's just staggering. He says they're carrying like so much gear just whizzing past them, do you know what I mean? He says everyone who's on this trip is just, you know, nowhere near <laughs> as fit as them. They're just, like, carrying, like, double the quantity and they're just flying past, you know, and no problem. They're just over the train, no problem. And what we kind of looked into the what each day was like, you know, and I think it started off from, like, the main town day one, Within a hundred yards, you had to probably cross this like rickety suspension bridge, and that was me. You know what I mean? I couldn't have gotten out of the town. But there's about twelve or thirteen, I think, of these like I'm not saying flimsy. You know what I mean? They'll be kind of rock solid, but they're, they're kind of sway, and they're up, you know, a few hundred feet above a gorge, and there's just a few of them. You know, quite a few of them. So even just, and we've seen photographs, and you're thinking, bloody hell. Just staggering. So there, yes, big thank you to everyone who kind of supported. I know it's been a long time. It's been a long time for us to kind of off on, off on, but he eventually got to base camp. And that's it. That's all we can. Oh God, I don't want him to come back and say, I'm going to go, I'm going to have a go at climbing it. The goal was just to get the kind of base camp. Do you know, I'm guessing when you're kind of going in to climb it, you helicopter in, but they did the walk in. So it is fascinating to see all the photographs. So big thank you indeed.
So, main fiction, like I say, it is Walk in Darkness by Emily Taylor. This is an original to Starship Sofa. Emily Taylor's short fiction has appeared in such venues as Asimov's Ectone Terrain. Originally from New York, she has received an MFA from the New School. She now lives in Columbus, Ohio and works in the scholarly publishing Please visit emilytaylor.org for more information. Now this story is narrated by Jen Albert. Yes, Jen Albert is an editor, writer, narrator and former entomologist. She is an acquiring editor at ECW Press in Toronto where she specialises in science fiction, fantasy, horror and speculative fiction. Jen was the co-editor of Podcastle a fantasy fiction podcast and magazine for five years and has been nominated for the Hugo Award, the Ignite Award and the Aurora Award, the World Fantasy Award and has won the British Fantasy Award for her editorial work. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Walk in Darkness by Emily Taylor Read for you by Jen R. Albert I didn't quite believe them. Not quite. The children who came in on a cold evening from the woods, hair-coated with torch smoke, dirt between their fingers and sticking to the hollows above their clavicles where they had unbuttoned their wraps. There are lights on the mountain, they said. They had run home so hard they were sweating in the chilled air. I thought they must have been trying to scare each other out past the edges of the Aruv and the trenches, the boundaries of the five river settlements. At first, we scolded them. Don't tell us wintering yarns, I said. My hands were busy and cramped, wrapping batches of kindling. I yanked another handful of dead winter grasses to bind them. We weren't born yesterday, said another elder. For two, three, four nights, they came to tell us of the lights, and we shooed them. And then there was the last blue twilight when we stopped ignoring their tales. We finally accepted that these children, who knew only firelight, were seeing electric lights, out where there should not be light. Where there had not been lights since before we settled here. Jared, the oldest child, his voice already half husky, stayed up late and quiet with the older folks at night. He leaned into the firelight. A gust of cool wind came in off the river, bearing the scent of fires from the other settlements. I think you should see it tonight, Anna. He turned to me and said, My mother and I had fled a life in the biodomes for this rugged freedom with the other original settlers. I could only remember bits and pieces from the domes. A warren of underground corridors, people living cramped in back-to-back apartments, if you wanted to call them that. Fetid air. Violence. Blades on my mother's throat holding us up for food or money until she was scarred there. But also, music. And discos. And digital games that my thumbs still itched to play. Another way of life. Where things were easier. And harder. Life is mostly hard out here in the stripped world. And living is for the lucky. But the air is clean now, and the water is passable and plenty, and the nights are quiet. Except for the howling canines. No longer dogs, and not yet wolves. Come now, it's time to sleep, Jared's mother said to him. 
She had yellowed eyes and was stooped. The first generations of those born out here were hollowed young by this life. My own children had not lived beyond their youngest days. Many didn't. But we figured out how to live free, bit by bit, beating out the canines for a rodent that we'd trap, more for the fur than the meat. But we threw them in the soup, and were grateful. The fish were thin in the river, but sometimes we'd make a stout catch in the late summer. And we got better at smoking them, storing them. We learned to make it through lean winters on nuts and dried berries. We didn't clear the canines. We knew the clearing of the predators from the land was one of the things that had led to the collapse. We were treading lightly this time around, only growing what we needed and taking what we needed. We cut trees and dug trenches around the bounds of the air roof to keep out the forest fires and canines, and beyond our boundaries we let the woods have their way. Our parents had told us that we were the strongest stones on the bottom of the wall on which everything else would be built. We tried to prove them right every day. Please come and see the lights, Anna, Jared said. He was robust, this boy, rough and tumble, and stronger than anyone I had ever seen in a dome, rippling muscles in his arms from playing hard and climbing and working the land. If you're lying, we're going to have you piling firewood and cleaning the latrines for a week, I said. Suffer no fools here. Have you all been tasting mushrooms in the woods? I'm not lying, he said. We're all sound mine. Sharp eyes. He pointed to them with his sooty fingers. He'd been drawing with a charred stick on bark. Don't mess with me. I'm tired, his mother said. She looked at us elders, gathered by the fire. We looked out to the soft curves of the dark mountains. Come see, he said. He looked at us, at his mother especially, with the solemn look of a child who needed the world explained to him again, after feeling like he understood it in most ways. We took torches and wrapped ourselves in cloaks that would keep our scents hidden from the canine packs. They were a bit shy of large groups of humans during the day, but at night we had to fear especially in midwinter. The cold season had stopped receding, finally, and that was why our parents had come back from the domes. To start again. Without the things that had nearly wiped the planet out to begin with. Like lights. Our soft soles barely brushed the flat rocks that we placed in the woods, polished a bit to pick up the light of the moon and to guide us on the trails toward the river that we shared with the canines. There were half-buried ruins out here for the last living survivalists who had eschewed the domes. They had nearly made it through, but not quite. Their last generations and our first ones were like the fallen bridges, aloft at the edges, but no longer meeting in the middle. We weren't certain how much time was between us. We passed under the Eruv, pausing in the cleared zone to swing on ropes across the trenches, looked back, and then plunged into the paths, into the wild. A creek bank made a silty plateau with a gap in the trees. Look, Jared said, his voice a whisper of breath that could be mistaken for the wind disturbing a pine cone. The river was frozen only in the still shallows, current rushing down the core. Lights. There they were, up on the mountain across from us, unmistakable. The small group of us, we held our breath when we saw them flicker with a gust of wind. One, two, three, maybe four of them in a row. 
Not fire. Electricity. A warning? A beacon? The others turned to me. I nodded. Lights, I said. Jared stayed by his mother's side on the walk back, like a much younger child, within reach of the crook of her arm. We heard every sound that night. Every burst of wind through the fallow fields, every rustle of mice digging on the ground near our storehouses, every creak of a human turning in sleep. We listened to the gurgle of our irrigation systems drawing up ash-filtered river water, and every crackle from the settlement fire. We had relief the night watch to discuss what the lights might be. Sentient aliens? Unlikely. Disruptors from the south sent to pillage and capture us? More likely. New settlers establishing themselves? Possible. They will be able to see our fires. They know we're here. Now we know they're there. Let's use the air roof to call the settlements together. Someone said. Slowly, the others nodded. Their faces, their jaws angular in the dark, clenched and set. A canine pack started to howl by the river. They'd been making a racket down there, probably frustrated by a shallow fish under the ice in the coves. Their sound always brought a shiver up my back, no matter how long I had fallen asleep to their piercing voices ricocheting off the rocks. We listened as the metal tine pressed the fine wire, nearly invisible, stretching around our settlements in a long oval along the river, enclosing us. The Aruv was the only precious relic we had retained from the last survivalists. Everything else our parents had found here, the trucks, supplies, even medicine, they had cleared out or allowed to be taken by the land. But they had found and repaired and maintained the Aruv to summon all settlements together, quickly in the gravest of circumstances. The wire vibrated through the ridge and over the fields of crops, looping back again. The Aruv was the mysterious reason why our partners had built the five settlements here. They had known about it somehow, through legend or clandestine communication to the domes. They never told us how they knew or how much they knew. We have a place by a river in mind where we can be safe, my mother said, when we were fleeing and she asked me to trust her. The less you know about the time before the domes, the better, they said. When we asked for more, they shook their heads no, keeping the past within. The arrow was simple technology. Keep the wire up, keep the ability to send an SOS around to the settlements. Just buzzing on the thin wire made of materials we didn't know the names for. There had been spools and spools of extra wire in the underground bunkers, and tools for splicing them for repair work. It was the only metal we kept. The five river settlements held together through the ring of wire along the tallest trees. There were round receivers that amplified the sound of vibration when they came through. We learned the sequence of sounds for our settlement number, and to call a gathering. We all knew the codes, even the children. The Aruv hummed dots and dashes through the barren winter canopies of the brittle trees. The tenuous ties between the settlements were for times like these. But what were these lights? I wondered. Perhaps the end of the life our parents had given so much to achieve? I remembered my mother weak from illness, crawling to start the fire, her hands swollen, her eyes sunken. 
I sat in her lap that day, feeling her fever tremors as she sorted out grain from chaff from one of the first harvests. She pulled through that time, but not the harder winter a few years later. I felt the chill go through my bones now. Anna, she said. She tied back my curls with a string. It's still the best thing I did. Watching you run free in this air. Don't you forget that. I pulled on one of my oldest memories of dome life. My mother carrying me through hands that were grasping, pulling to steal my boots. The ones my mother had bought for our escape. She spat on the person pulling at my ankles and we got away, heaving in the stale air. No, we would not ever want to go back there, no matter what these lights meant. The other settlements had heard our call and sent their elders the next morning. Jared spoke, his voice rasping in an attempt to speak out loud as he could. I think we need to be ready for what comes next, he said. His mother put her arms around him. The strong child of the people who chose to go wild into the world. I reached for his shoulder, letting myself feel my own lost children, sent out into the river, lifeless in pine rafts that erupted into bright flames from a shot arrow. I remembered these babies with their thin limbs, ribs like butterfly wings, dark, beautiful, lifeless eyes to the open sky. Peter, the elder from the settlement that was on the steep riverbank, had a body that was hunched and uneven on the ground. So accustomed he was to life in the trees, shifting his body one way or another, tethered, harnessed, hammocked. That was the way of their settlement. He didn't appear at ease on the earth any longer. His voice was quiet. Perhaps this is it. We're living at the end of a burning candle, he said. He cleared his throat. We swapped seeds and stories when we came together for yearly gatherings at the first new moon of the year. But generally, we stayed apart. We knew that coming together would attract attention in some way, from somewhere. From the southern domes, where perhaps they were still trying to preserve their technology, their medicine, in the face of everything. They would want to believe us perished, not living through generations. But they never came to check. Perhaps not until now. One of the children got taken by the canines, said Dawn from the third settlement. Last month, a tree had fallen across the trench and they got into the settlement at night. She shook her head. Her hair fell around her in a blanket. We never found remains was the thing, she said. The child was taken at night from where she was sleeping in one of the low lofts. We just hope it was so fast she didn't wake. The lights in the darkness seem to bring out the worst of our fears of life out here and its fragility. Nothing left of her. Not any hair, not a shred of clothing, not even an eye or a skull, she said. We took down that loft and built one higher. They've gotten better at hiding things then, said Amy, from the fifth settlement, where there were fewer old trees and they had mainly built their dwellings in cave or underground. A new skill. We let that crackle in the fire for some time. There have always been stories of children taken by wolves, said another elder. Those are the oldest stories there are. He nodded at the fire, 
perhaps remembering the voice of someone telling him a story as he drifted off to sleep as a boy. I brought some alcohol. Here, don't tell the kids, said Jane. We passed the bottle and let the harsh undertones of it coat our throats and our bellies for the moment. We complained about how terrible and wonderful it tasted all at the same time. The ones in the domes think we're dead, or that we need salvation, or that we are the ones living in packs out here destroying whatever we find. I said, Or they think we are their salvation, which is even more frightening, Peter said. Dawn sat back against her boulder and stretched her arms until they clicked in their sockets. What are we doing here, talking? She said. I mean, really. We know what we need to do. Oldest ones leave tomorrow with Dawn. She's right, Amy said. Of course she's right said Peter. There's no harm in talking. Jane poured another drink. There's harm in talking when we need to rest up, said Dawn. She went to wake the next night watch, and we unhooked fur-lined hammocks from the trees, and we lofted ourselves near enough to the embers to stay warm. In the end, only Dawn, Peter, and I went. Amy woke with a bum knee, swollen from the walk to the settlement the day before, and Jane had woken up with a rotten gut, retching. The alcohol. Likely she had taken more swigs than the rest of us. We tied our cloaks about us in the wind, in the pink sunrise. A vanished child. The lights. None of it felt good. None of it felt like a normal part of the brutally mundane life of staying alive by the skin of our teeth. Not that any of us had many teeth left. Peter brought spans of hemp rope and carved hooks. Don carried the filtered water and food, and I carried the torch. We carried weapons such as they were, a club with canine teeth embedded, sharp rock flake blades, arrows with bows, a couple of dust bombs, bags of fine ground dirt to cloud the air. We stepped softly on our stone paths and wore our scent-blocking cloaks. The air was bracing. We spent most of the morning working our way down to the foot of the ruined bridge, where we would use the fallen trusses and girders to keep the raft from getting far down the river away from the lights. Peter started hooking the first rope to a sturdy stump, and then threw the hook on the raft. The mist rose. We tested the raft to make certain the winter hadn't weakened the sap and knots that kept it sturdy. In the spring, we'd take the children down here, as we always did, to review how it worked, we would fish from it in the summer when the fish retreated from the shallows to the down deep. Let's go, Dawn said. She pulled her cloak around her and was first on the raft, holding the rope and threading it through and tying off it. I sat in the middle with an oar. The river was calm, but the water was cold enough to kill us fast, if something happened. Peter slung the next hooked rope to the next piece of metal, and on we went, tethered. About halfway through, Peter's aim left its true mark, and he started needing second and third chances to make the hook. Shoulders sore, he said, and shook his head. Change with me, I said. He took the steadying oar, and I started slinging the hook to catch the next piece of metal stuck in the water from the fallen bridge. I wasn't as good as Peter had been, but I made the mark most of the time. 
I missed once when we were nearly to the point where the rocks of the opposite shore were within reach, and the hook hit something that was not rock, snagged it and dragged it along, fighting. Something's down there, I said. What thing? asked Don. Bottom feeder? I shook my head, peering out in the water. I reeled in the rope and sent it out again. Again, it was grabbed and pulled. Something big, I said. I pointed with my arm. I'll get the torch. And I lit it and held it out of the water, willing the thing to come toward a flash of fire, like all animals did, out of curiosity. The frigid wind off the water was making me cold to my marrow, and we all sucked in our breath when we saw the thing's face. Large nose, gray on top, white under the chin, and the oldest eyes I had ever seen on an animal. It parted its mouth a little, sharp, pointy teeth, twice as long as a person. I put out the torch. Canines have a competitor, I said. I turned my head a little, and I had the feeling that the river creature, a large fish with blades for teeth, turned its head a little, too, to follow my gaze. I thought I was looking at the oldest, newest thing I had ever seen. I put my hands out to Don and Peter, who were staring, too. The mist suddenly seemed endless. Let's get out of here alive, Don said, and in spring, river baths are optional. We got ourselves out of the river, and I didn't relish the thought of going back over. We pulled the raft high and dry and sat on the bank for a moment, facing the water. I think none of us felt much like having our backs to it, but of course that meant our backs were to the dark forest behind us. Those things are getting the dogs, Peter said. He was one of the last ones who called them dogs. He was one of the last ones who knew friendly dogs in childhood in the domes. My only memory of them was their ways of sidling up next to my small body in a cafeteria, taking an opportunity to swipe a meal. He'd had a pet to keep him warm at night. They left her behind. Don drew a large breath. We had to face whatever was up on that hill, so we broke through the thick underbrush and sunk into the dark woods. It would be rough going now. The paths were cut out on our side of the river, but as far as we knew, it had been years since the last time someone had used the raft to scope out nuts and berries on this side, finding nothing worth the effort of a river crossing. We made our way through the needle-covered ground, where I thought the softest path might lie. I thought each gentle branch break would be our undoing. We made slow progress until we came to an outcropping, where we needed to rest and to eat something. Peter ate quickly and started climbing a tree. I'm going to scout things out a little, he said. He made slow progress on the ground, but on the branches he was sure and lithe. He got to the top of the tree and looked out slowly and stayed up there for some time while Don and I ate. When he came down, he just shook his head. It's still... maybe too much, so... After a few more hours of slogging through undergrowth, we reached smoother ground and some foundations of buildings from the time before the last survivalists. There was the metallic smell of rust from heavy machinery breaking down here, catching the cold air. It always made me nervous to be around the wreckage of what used to be. My mother had trained me well. I always wanted to bury it all, 
cover it with the earth and hope we'd never see anything like it again and would never discover how to make anything like it again. It had brought us practically to the end of all life on the planet. The first night on the run, I remembered. My mother had nestled with me in the leaves and said, Face to the sky. Face to the sky. This is how we're meant to be. Being away from the domes had meant everything to her. I felt the movement of wind on my face and thought of her. The slope was warm down to its bony rocks. We stepped sideways and made it up the steep slope, happy to be in a clearing rather than fighting brambles the whole way. But around us, the woods began crackling, the branches swooshing, the undergrowth being torn away in a circle, coming closer. We barely had time to breathe. A canine pack slid from the gaps between the trees and then gathered on the crest. On this side of the river, this pack did not know humans. This was their domain alone. The canines were slim, but hungry-looking, mouths ajar, teeth bared and pink gums. Don and Peter and I started shouting them down first as we moved to the trees. That's what we knew to do, to try to scare them first. We stomped our feet and yelled together. I heard the scared breaths gusting out of my companions. We lit our torches quickly with flint packs on the sides of our shoes and stood back to back to back as they snapped their teeth at us. We were as close to the trees as we could be. This is not how I want to die. I don't know about you, Dawn said, and she drew her bow. Maybe they'll turn away if they smell their own blood. Their teeth were snapping, clicks that lodged in the base of my neck with shivers of fear. They turned their heads to each other. I imagined our settlements across the river hearing the ruckus and fearing the worst. They had been instructed that if we didn't return, they were not to come after us under any circumstances. We'd be as gone as the young girl who was taken. Masks on, Dawn said, and we all pulled our cloaks up around our noses and mouths. We drew our dust bombs against the ground and held our breaths and closed our eyes. We continued yelling and moving toward the trees. I swung the torch. I smelled singed hair, burnt skin. Peter took the club and shifted it to his good arm. Now, Peter said. Dawn sank an arrow in the throat of the nearest canine in the cloud of dust, and, using the torches as weapons, Peter leapt to the lowest branches of the nearest tree, braced himself, and pulled each of us up in turn as we wielded our weapons and beat them back. Dawn's ankle got nipped on the way up, but she kicked with her other foot and landed a blow on the canine's nose. They leapt and scratched at the tree bark. We continued climbing and got to midway up the tree. Dawn wrapped her ankle tight and we stayed there, just breathing for an hour. The canines circled below for a while, but then dispersed, looking for something else, endlessly seeking. Do not learn from them, my mother said when I was young. Do not seek. Stay near the Eruv. Stay together. But here we were. I felt the wind rocking through the tree as if it had bones and muscle. Doing okay, Don? I asked finally. I've suffered worse than a bite like this, she said. We all had. What didn't kill you weakened you. We were not up here because we were the strongest, but because we were the most expendable. We could no longer split boughs like the ones we were resting on. We got down and got our cloaks around us when we could no longer hear the pack in the distance. The light was fading to low angles, 
We made our way up along the edge of the clearing this time, rather than meandering to the middle of it. There were fallen pillars of metal languishing in the earth. The rusty metal was everywhere now. We picked our way through it. I kicked at it, and some more of it crumbled, eaten away by rain and cold. When we got close to the mountaintop, it was getting close to dark, and we weren't sure exactly where to look for the lights. They had not yet come on, but here we were, finally, on the summit. We stopped. Listened. Nothing. We crouched and waited on a rocky plateau, and there was a buzz, a sound like a loud insect might sound on a hot day. A crackle, a fizz, and then lights. There was actual heat emanating from them. Lock arms, I said. Get low. I wanted to do it only for the comfort of closeness. We approached. They were large bulbs, burning bright in a row. But there was no one there. Just lights on a metal stand. What's making them happen? Peter said. We got closer. A large cluster of trees had burned down in front of the lights, making the mountain bare there, with charred trunks and downed trees in front. A forest fire. A bad one. Lightning strike, I said. Just blow the top of the mountain. There were clusters of thick wires that went to the ground. Maybe the lightning jolted something awake. I don't think it works like that, I said. If it was a battery, lightning would fry it. I remembered batteries. Remembered taking them out of electronics and jiggling them a little to keep my game system running. It was odd to see the texture of our skin, the features of our faces and artificial light. I had grown so used to firelight and torches at night, and to darkness. I blinked in the brightness and looked across the river. I think it's run by an underground generator. I think it's been here all along, I said. It's just that the trees and bush were so thick we probably couldn't see them before now. Peter looked at the trees around and nodded. That's likely it, he said. I noticed we were all breathing easier than we had been all day. Generators and backup power, that was a thing. I remembered it only from my youngest childhood. There was always talk of power in the domes. Endless backups for everything. Last survivalists, probably, I said. There were nine lights total, and half were lit. They were not bulbs. They were made of something else, something stronger. I couldn't think of what. And the base, precious metal, perhaps, it was made of. Was it a signal to others? A symbol for something? The base looked like the rarer form of metal, something different than what had built everything else. Gold, said a small voice in my head. A dim memory from my childhood from something I couldn't quite reach in the depths of my mind. I imagined there were caves in these hills with saved treasures and knowledge that would go unknown until it was reclaimed by the dirt itself. We would tell the children never to seek it out. I would tell them these lights were a warning against everything that had come before. The survivalists had not survived. Those holdouts had not held. Our parents had told us that if we were to persist we would need to follow a different path from the one humans had been down before. These lights could only serve as a reminder of that message. Don, Peter, and I, our eyes wet with relief and the effort of the trip, 
joined together in an embrace and croaks of laughter. Thankful, 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 I murmured. We're alone out here as we have ever been, said Peter. We rested up there by the lights, half of our minds watching for the canines. Look out there, Don said. She pointed. From this side of the river, we could see a flash of our home fires lit for evening meals when the sun dipped just below the rise. The light of the Aruv was aglow, slicing the smoke, the lowering night, the wind, the light itself. Beyond our settlements was the rest of the wild continent, overgrown and run by canines or perhaps realms of other beasts, birds of prey, more river hunters. Perhaps there were even other survivalists and bunkers who made it through, living under the earth or up in the trees. Other settlements, maybe, that we knew better than to go and discover. Never you mind, my mom always said. What is out there is out there. The bones of everyone I've ever loved are sunk at the bottom of this river. Here we'd stay. The mysteries of who humans had been would die with the last of us who remembered the domes. We only ever told the children what we thought they needed to know about the past. Not much. In the morning we'll go back, I said. Peter scanned the trees near us, searching for the sturdiest prospect to climb to stay the night where we would let the buzz of electricity lull us to sleep for the last time in our lives. A memory came back to me, unbidden, of a radio show I listened to as a child in the domes, the static buzz, the warm voice and soft music. I shrugged off the warmth of the memory and let it fade away again into the recesses of my mind. Soon there would be no one here who would remember anything like that at all. My mother's last words came to me her mouth dry and dying on a spring day that retained the chill of the cold months she had just barely survived. My hand was under her neck, warmed by her fever, cramped and holding her face to the yellow sun. Remember, we are here to live lightly on the face of the planet. This time, we wear winged shoes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
And there you go. Wow, man. Emily, thank you so much indeed. That's a, just a fantastic story. Thank you. And original to Starship Sova. Jen, what can I say? Five years at Podcastle. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> you've done your you've done your dues there. It's just you can tell what a great voice. Thank you indeed as well. It's just perfect. Lovely. So our very own Amy H. Sturgis Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I am delighted to talk about a new book. I would say <laughs> it's about time, but that makes me sound a lot less grateful than I am for this work. And in fact, the timing is perfect because this is a new anthology of criticism and scholarship about Frank Herbert's Dune saga. And of course, there is a great groundswell of interest in Dune right now, thanks to the film adaptations. But also, on the other hand, Dune never went out of style, right? This is the first book, Dune by Frank Herbert, to win both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards. And since its publication in 1965, Dune and its original five sequels, so the six-book saga by Frank Herbert, have really never left the consciousness of the science fiction community. Those books represent a watershed moment in science fiction, and certainly for a lot of us as readers, the Dune novels really changed our lives. Certainly, I grew up with Frank Herbert, and there was a period of time in my teens where I would read all six books every year. That was sort of a recurring birthday gift to myself. And I've gone on to teach Dune and be incredibly interested in the ongoing conversations about that work. So I am delighted that McFarland Books, which you can find at McFarlandBooks.com, has now published fresh off the presses, Discovering Dune, Essays on Frank Herbert's Epic Saga, edited by Dominic J. Nardi and in Trevor Brierley. The anthology kicks off with a foreword from Timothy O'Reilly. These days, O'Reilly is the CEO and chairman of O'Reilly Media, which delivers online learning and publishes books and presents conferences about cutting-edge technology, but he's more known in science fiction circles for writing in 1981 the first book-length treatise on Dune and the other early novels of Frank Herbert. That book is still given props, as it should be, as sort of the definitive treatment of Frank Herbert's works. So that's right out of the gate, a lovely nod to the history of Frank Herbert criticism or Dune criticism. And in that foreword, O'Reilly says, and I quote, Frank believed that humans seek stability and control in a world that constantly surprises us and that we must learn instead to get better at responding to uncertainty. That seems about as relevant as it comes in the age of COVID-19 and climate change. We cannot take for granted the world we live in, and we must step up to shape the one our children will inherit from us. End quote. So there, 
setting the stage for why it matters now that we are going back to and thinking about and having a conversation over Frank Herbert's works, the Dune Saga in particular. The introduction by the co-editors points out that despite the fact Dune won both the Hugo and Nebula Award, despite the fact, quote, it is widely regarded as a masterpiece of speculative fiction on par with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, end quote. And by the way, as someone who's taught both, I can say absolutely that is the case. There hasn't been the same sustained critical attention to Dune or Frank Herbert in the way that, for example, Tolkien's work has inspired the whole subfield of Tolkien studies with its own journals and publications and ongoing conversations. In fact, there are many authors of science fiction whose works have had more dedicated study. So this explains my it's about time (laughs) comment, how welcome this volume is. But I also want to give credit to the co-editors who started by taking stock of what had been done, what was already there. So they were building on pre-existing conversations about Dune and Frank Herbert. And the product of that research is a fantastic appendix, just makes my historian heart very happy. It's invaluable to people who are interested in Dune. This bibliography of scholarship, what already existed before this new anthology came out, and it covers everything in interviews and archives and essays and books. It's a wonderful addition here, this appendix of the bibliography of scholarship on Dune. As far as I'm concerned, the appendix is worth the price of admission for this book. But wait, there's more, including Essays divided into four major parts. The first, Politics and Power. Of course, Dune is known as a work of political science fiction, so it's very fitting that that section takes the lead, and there are four essays there. The second part, History and Religion, of particular interest to me, again, historian here, I was particularly pleased to see Beside the Sand Dunes, Arab Futurism, Faith, and the Fremen of Dune by R. Ali there in that section. The third section, Biology and Ecology, is also of particular interest given that Dune has been rightly credited as a work of eco-science fiction. And there are some terrific essays here, and one in particular I thought was quite interesting From Taming Sand Dunes to Planetary Ecology, Historical Perspectives on Environmental Thought and Politics in the Dune Saga by Paul Reef. And another essay that really struck me, Shifting Sands, Heroes, Power, and the Environment in the Dune Saga by Willow Wilson de Pascal. This essay ends with a couple of things that really struck me. One, how much people miss if they read 
Dune from 1965 and take a pass on Dune Messiah from 69, Children of Dune from 76, God Emperor of Dune from 81, Heretics of Dune from 84, and Chapter House Dune from 85. These works speak to each other and complicate the story and respond to the story told in the original Dune and really need to be taken as a whole in order to see the bigger picture, in order to get Herbert's larger message. And I really appreciate De Pascal pointing out how much of the meaning you lose if you don't think of the story as a six-work saga. But also, point two here, something else I really was struck by, is just the meaningfulness of these characters and what they're telling us. So here I'd like to quote from De Pascal. Quote, in Children of Dune, Paul, now the blind preacher, asserts it is not always the majestic concerns of imperial ministers which dictate the course of history, nor is it necessarily the pontifications of priests which move the hands of God. Through this passage, Herbert implies that the everyday citizen, not the superhero, can dictate the course of history and move the hands of God. Another chapter's epigraph asserts that no matter what progress is made in human civilization, the very future of humankind depends on the relatively simple actions of single individuals. Such an interpretation positions the Dune saga as a work readers can view through their own cultural lens, questioning contemporary systems of power, their impact on ecosystems, and the folly of placing trust in a political savior. Herbert's chronicle of the Atreides family's influence on the course of the universe is nuanced, messy, and complicated— but these complications should not be dismissed. By dismissing the sequels as too dense or intricate, some readers are depriving themselves of rich ground for analysis. Scholars and readers alike would do well to revisit these works, leaving open the possibility that they can be moved by the turmoil of these characters and convinced not to look to Paul as their rescuer, but as a supremely fallible and relatable character, a representation of the enormous potential and failure bound up in human nature. End quote. What great insights. Love that. And I thought that passage was a nice window into how this larger anthology is inviting us to relate to the Dune books and think about the messages that they share and the way that they continue to have something to offer to us in our lives and our experiences today. The last section in this anthology is philosophy, choice, and ethics. Speaking of things relevant to our times and evergreen, if we are intending to be humans <laughs> and have a human experience. And speaking of the human experience, of these four essays here, there's a, another one I'd like to give a shout out to, and that is, I suggest you may be human, humanity and human action in Dune by Curtis A. Wayant. And this is some good big idea stuff here. After discussing Paul Atreides and how he comes away with a larger set of tools for imagining what will happen in the future and then choosing an action in support of his goals, 
Wayant says, quote, giving students a broader tool set was likewise the goal Frank Herbert had in his political science class at the University of Washington, using texts like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and Thomas More's Utopia, science fiction, to explore how personal myths often impede understanding between different people. That's a big deal there, how personal myths often impede understanding between different people. Through the discussions in his class, as well as his own writings, Herbert tried to answer the question of what it means to be human. His own response to that question was, it means just like me. Fortunately, through the literary exploration of works like Dune, we can synthesize other perspectives of humanity, so that just like me takes on a broader meaning, giving us a bigger tool set with which to act upon our own world. End quote. So yes, just delicious stuff here. I am impressed by this anthology, and I highly recommend it. It knows where the conversation has been, and with things like the appendix that gives us a broader understanding of criticism, about Dune. It's very helpful. But also you're looking at here a collection of works coming from different disciplines, accessible to non-expert readers. This is a useful anthology for people who are just now discovering the Dune saga, or for those of us who have been reading and rereading the Dune books for a long time. So many perspectives and so many useful insights here. So uh, congratulations to McFarland Books. Congratulations to co-editors Dominic J. Nardi and N. Trevor Brierley. And I recommend Discovering Dune, Essays on Frank Herbert's Epic Saga, which just came out in August 2022, bringing us all up to speed on and setting the course for the next stages of Dune Scholarship. So I hope this book recommendation and discussion has been useful to you. I look forward to joining you again very soon with something completely different when we get together to take another look back at genre history. Thank you. Ah, oh, big, big cuddles there, Ian. Thank you indeed. Yes, your favourite month, your favourite time is upon us. And it's not mine, mind you, not mine at all. No, I'm pulling out the old SAD lamps and everything like that, getting ready there. Spring's mine, just I got the gardener in us. Amy, thank you so much indeed. So that is today's show, 694, Put to Bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. I don't get that much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. But the is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I want to talk to you.
be By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 